0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights, all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Yeah, it's Friday. Well done, everyone. You're nearly there. Uh, you're watching Scorebox. Uh, Arabi Lee Gamades with us. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Steve. And myself, Steve Sedgwick. A lot of headlines for you, a lot of stories. Let's get into it. Chair Jerome Powell striking a hawkish tone, leaving the door open, yes, to further rate hikes, whilst warning against the risk of being misled by a few good months of data.
2: We are not confident that we've achieved such a stance. We know that ongoing progress toward our 2% goal is not assured. Inflation has given us a few head fakes along the way. If it becomes appropriate to tighten policy further, we will not hesitate to do so.
1: Well, those Powell comments, plus a weak 30-year bond auction, sparked a jump in treasury yields and ended the rally on Wall Street, whilst the S&P
0: 500 actually snapped its eight-day winning streak. In politics, Pedro Sanchez looks set to return as Spain's Prime Minister, that's after his Socialist Party, strikes an amnesty deal with Catalan separatists in a move that has been branded as a humiliation by opposition leader Alberto Nunez Feiju.
3: We warned that Mr. Sanchez was ready to do anything in order to stay in power, and unfortunately, time has shown we were right. It even went beyond our expectations.
0: Shares in Siemens Energy close up 6% on reports of a breakthrough in talks to provide state guarantees for the company as it looks to safeguard its more than 100 billion dollar or euro order book. And
1: Bitcoin uh, hitting an 18-month high, whilst Ether topping the key $2,000 level on signs that asset management giant BlackRock is taking its first steps towards a spot ETF. The CEO of Ripple tells CNBC new rules are needed.
2: At some point, the SEC has to step back and realize that their approach of regulation through enforcement, let's just bring lawsuits, that, that has to break.
1: I'll be honest with you, I'm surprised you're surprised because so many of you apparently, and I don't know if you all are, if it's just the scribes trying to fill in uh, reams of copy, I'm surprised that anyone's surprised that Powell wouldn't call in uh, the white flag and say, yeah, we're done now on inflation as well. But apparently some people were surprised. So the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell spooked markets. Again, how? Uh, as he left open the door for further rate hikes, i.e. reiterating what he's already said a dozen times. Uh, He warned against the risk of being, quote, misled by good data. Speaking in a panel discussion at the IMF, Powell said he believes the Fed faces nearly equal risks of either raising its benchmark rate too high or not raising it high enough. Any of that you didn't know? No, you knew it all. You should have done. He said that officials were hopeful of a retreat in price pressures, but wouldn't hesitate to raise rates if necessary.
2: The FOMC is committed to achieving a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to bring inflation down to 2% over time. We are not confident that we've achieved such a stance. We know that ongoing progress toward our 2% goal is not assured. Inflation has given us a few head fakes along the way. If it becomes appropriate to tighten policy further, we will not hesitate to do so. We will continue to move carefully, however, allowing us to address both the risk of being misled by a few good months of data and the risk of over-tightening.
0: So as Steve said, it's quite correct. Jay Powell has always noted that it will remain higher for longer, it will be data-led, but has not necessarily taken away the chances of another rate hike here. Jay Powell, of course, the market-moving impact that we really were expecting yesterday, the market mover we were all anticipating in the diary. And so that's come and gone. But one would argue that on the other side of that, we still had that 30-year bond auction, which was another market mover itself. Not as much demand when it comes to that one. And it has meant then that we saw those yields tick a little bit higher on the back of Jay Powell plus that 30-year bond auction but also meant that the stocks actually went lower in yesterday's trading session across the day, falling across all the major uh, sectors then as well. All 11 were actually down. So those two uh, primary news pieces really affecting things as well. Bond deals, as I said, ticking higher. Disney did rise 7% after those better than anticipated numbers uh, out of their Q4 data. Arm dipping uh, 5%, over 5% after their first earnings as a listed entity. Then MGM results also slipping around 1% despite strong results. So they've snapped their longest winning streak in around two years, have the markets, as you can tell here. But here's, what it, here's what's very interesting. We've been speaking about their longest winning streak in around two years, eight days, seven days, nine days or so of gains. But it took one day, effectively, of losses to see us sit in the red, primarily for the industrials and the S&P 500 for the week we only have the nasdaq holding on to gains there a third of a percent higher and that again led by a lot of the technology stocks microsoft being one of those who have gained nearly three percent to close out the week energy the worst performer uh, performing sector for the week that's also down around three percent so it gives you a clear notion then that yes it was a rally But it wasn't significant enough to have pushed things along for uh, a lot of this market. The Nasdaq, of course, one of the big gainers, though, thus far this week. On to the Treasury's board. We have spoken about that 30-year bond yield, of course, which uh, did see uh, less demand than perhaps was hoped for in this market picture. And it did mean that we saw those uh, bond yields then head a little bit higher than, in fact, the 10-year went to 4.6122 as it currently stands Uh, at this time the two-year now back above that five percent mark having dipped just below that earlier this week on to the dollar crosses then uh, where we sit with the currencies seeing the dollar index even marginally falling is where we anticipated it uh, just yesterday but today You're seeing pretty much uh, a flattish stance. 122.26 then uh, against the sterling has been one to really look out for. 124 was the mark we saw a little bit earlier this week uh, for the the sterling price now. And that was a seven-week top against the dollar then uh, for sterling. 151 is where we sit against the yen, so we're still asking the question if there will be any sense of intervention. Asian markets. Well, yesterday we thought we'd see a few gains. We didn't, unfortunately. So down it went as well by the close of it. One and a half percent down as well for the Hang Seng this morning, uh, retreating then uh, from some of the small gains that were perhaps in play even earlier in the week. South Korea's benchmark index set to outpace its regional peers then even for the week. The KOSPI is down close to one and a half percent after what was a strong start to the week there. Of course, following on from what was a downbeat day out of the United States. Steve.
1: Yeah, thanks very much indeed. A day of realism perhaps as well. Look, we've got a technology expert who's already waiting in our green room. He got in lovely and early. That's Mark Horton. I just want to flag that up in 23 minutes time. We'll talk to him about AI and we'll tap him for a bit of uh, technology uh, stock gen as well. So as Arabita was saying, the US Treasury yields climbed on Thursday following a $24 billion sale of 30-year Treasury bonds. It drew weaker than expected demand. The sales bid to cover ratio was weakest in roughly two years. Indirect and uh, direct bidders were also at their weakest level uh, since 2021. And actually, the primary dealers, the ones who kind of back this, they were left with 24.7% of the debt on offer. That is more than double the average of the last couple of years as well. So look... um, I started off the show with a, a healthy degree of scepticism. And, and, and you followed me down that path, Arabella, as well, talking about why the market should be surprised at anything the Fed said yesterday. I want to go into a tiny bit of detail, uh, picking up some points from Carl Weinberg about what three things he said that actually perhaps spook the market there as well. One, the process of getting inflation to 2% has a long way to go. Two, Fed officials are not convinced that the policy stance is sufficiently restrictive. And, of course, there's been a lot of commentary from various members of the Fed saying, well, yeah, we think we're in restrictive range, but... Powell there is saying we're not convinced that the stance is sufficiently restrictive. And three, that the FOMC will not hesitate to raise rates further if appropriate. Now, moving on to the bond yield side of the the ledger as well. Asked about long yields, the chair repeated that the Fed is looking for persistent changes. uh, And the reason behind the move up in yields is also important as well. Persistent changes, that is not what we got last week, is it, where the yield came off? Uh, 50 basis points from five down to 4.5 percent as well and the market is almost trying to lead the witness so to speak on this one as well i'll just move on to that equity market story that you were talking about as Arabella, yeah. as well because we both looked in a lot of detail and the fact that the russell 2k was down 4.2 percent for the week the dow trans and so far and the dow transports are down 1.7 percent for the week as well and actually it only took A minor downtick day from the uh, the S&P to send it into negative territory for the week. It's all very well some of the the market historians saying, oh, we had an eight-day winning streak. It was a record-breaking territory and what have you. Well, the fact of the matter is these were very paltry moves on a daily basis, you were saying. And when you look into a bit more detail, technology up 2.1% for the week so far, energy down 5%. Within the technology sector, IT was up 2.8%. Communication services up as well. NVIDIA, uh, General Digital as well. Some of these individual lumpy stocks were, were skewing the picture for the broader market as well. And it's very important to say that actually a vast number of US stocks are significantly lower for the week.
0: Yeah, so the broad-based discussion will be where do you find your value? What are you looking at right now uh, to try and say to yourself, well, there's enough to kind of pick on precisely for the end of the year, which is uh, where some may be interested in looking. And, and you know, I thought it was very significant, as you mentioned, that, that small caps sinking even further. Let's remember that on a year basis, then year-to-date losses for the Russell 2K has actually also reached 4%. When you compare that to the S&P 500, which has actually gained 13.2% or so, uh, it kind of gives you a clear sentiment. And maybe this is where that consumer story and the macroeconomic story is beginning to have that flashing red somehow, uh, that economic worries may indeed be persisting. I also wanted to touch on that uh, central bank story that you touched on a little bit earlier as well, Stephen, say that even across the pond, actually, that similar discussions are happening. So the ECB's uh, vice president, uh, Luis de Guindo, saying that it's too premature to be discussing rate cuts. So a similar sentiment to what Fed Chair Jerome Powell has been speaking of, saying that actually we're still looking at trying to ensure that things are restrictive. Speaking of restrictive, Hugh Pill from the Bank of England saying that policy would have to remain uh, restrictive in order to push CPI back to that 2% target range. So is it premature to be speaking about, for example, in the U.S., Having rate cuts, uh, the dot plot seems to be pointing towards, or markets seem to be pointing towards a 50 basis point cut in interest rates up until the end of next year. Is that perhaps too premature when we could even have one more hike, if not more? Because I think if you're going to hike again, Steve, you don't make just one cut. I mean, one hike.
1: Um I don't know, it's the truth, and I, I actually don't know if it is one, if it's skips and pauses, whether one is more going to do it, whether the data, the cumulative and lag data's going to leave further there. So I, I couldn't possibly say that. But one thing I will say is you mentioned Hugh Peel there as well about yeah. policy rates need to be restrictive. Well, it's actually his co- intervention that led to the guilt rally, certainly at the short end earlier yeah. this week, was saying might, maybe mid-2024 might be the time for rate cuts as well. So I think actually that, that Peel is saying two different things uh, in the perhaps in the same way, and then, then they're both being interpreted different ways. I think that's very interesting that the market's on a different day choosing to say, OK, they need to be restrictive. Ergo, we don't buy gilts. And on another day, saying we may get cuts down to – from the middle of 2024, uh, ergo, um, that that we can buy gilts. But um, yeah, and one more comment I just want to raise as well, and just about the lack of subtlety in the market as well. This is from Datatrek as well. The S&P 500 earnings declined by an average 31% during a recession, and it typically takes three years for earnings to recover. Neither outcome is remotely baked into U.S. stocks. And I think that's fair to say that there's no subtlety in the moves we've seen on the U.S. markets as well. Average 31% decline in earnings in a recession. Now, a lot of people believe we're not going to get a recession. So, uh, pays your money. Uh, On a programming note, don't miss Steve Leesman's exclusive interview with the San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly. That's coming up later today at 1900 CET. Okay, let's have a a quick look at some of the... uh, This statement's coming out from Richemont as well. I've just gone straight to source on this one as well. Sales and operating profits from continuing operations, 10.2 billion euros and 2.7 billion respectively, notwithstanding certain uh, uncertain macroeconomic and geopolitical environments, demanding comparatives and significant adverse foreign currency movements as well. Sales up 6% at constant exchange rates, actual exchange rates. Growth led by... I beg your pardon, that's 12% at constant, 6% at actual. Growth led by Asia-Pacific, which is very interesting, uh, up 14% at uh, actual exchange rates as well. Continued outperformance of retail up 9%, uh, operating profit from continued operations down 2%. And I'll just give you a, a quick snapshot of the, the, the shares you can see on the screen are down pretty dramatically uh, from their highs. Of course, there's been warnings elsewhere in the sector, the downbeat updates from the likes of LVM. H All
0: right, we'll continue to, of course, dive into those uh, data pieces as well across the day. But coming up on the show, violent protests erupt in Spain. That's amid anger over Pedro Sanchez's amnesty deal with the fugitive leader of a Catalan separatist party. Plus, Siemens Energy gets a boost amid reports of a breakthrough in talks over state guarantees. And we'll hear from Ripple CEO Brad Garlinghouse as Bitcoin hits an 18-month high. You can catch that exclusive conversation 7:45 CET. Welcome back. Now, Spanish protests grew increasingly violent as thousands of people took to the streets for a fourth night in a row opposed to the Spanish Socialist Party's deal with Catalan separatists to form a government. As part of the deal, acting Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez agreed to grant a controversial amnesty to those involved in Catalonia's failed secession attempt in 2017. Spain's opposition parties have deemed the agreement a humiliation. Charlotte joining us uh, for this discussion. Fragility is ultimately the word that comes to mind now for Pedro Sanchez's leadership. Could that be the word to describe the next few years, do you think? I mean, he's, he's making a deal here which could be very difficult to sustain by the looks of it for the remainder of the year. Yeah. His time in office.
4: It is quite controversial. But just to remind you of the context, we had these inconclusive elections back in July after Pedro Sanchez suffered a really bruising defeat in local elections. So he called a snap election to try to limit the damage. The centre-right party came first. They had a first dip at trying to form a government. They failed. Therefore, Pedro Sanchez had his chance to try and form it. And he's been in negotiations with a myriad of smaller parties to get enough vote for a potential investiture vote, including, as you were saying, those independentist parties of Catalonia and so just to picture the scene over the past few days you had a representative of the Socialist Party sitting in Brussels with a party that only has seven seats in the Spanish Parliament out of 350 negotiating with Carlos Puigdemont who is uh, the leader of that party Junes who's uh, in self-imposed exile because he doesn't want to face the Spanish justice after he was leading that illegal referendum on independence 2017 so you have these negotiations which is a bit of a surreal scene and so have come to disagreement, including, as you were saying, this very controversial question of an amnesty to those prosecuted over this referendum of 2017. So the backlash is quite big. Uh, the opposition leader himself, Mr. Fejo, uh, was speaking yesterday. He, he described disagreement between the Socialist Party and Junes of uh, humiliation and blackmail. de
0: que el señor Sánchez.
3: We warned that Mr. Sanchez was ready to do anything in order to stay in power, and unfortunately, time has shown we were right. It even went beyond our expectations. Sanchez has given in to the separatists' blackmail, a total and complete surrender that all Spaniards will pay, with our taxes, our rights, and with our dignity.
4: Uh, Spanish judges' associations also yes, they voiced their concern, they said this deal puts in question the judicial independence and the separation of powers. The EU justice commissioner sent a letter to the Spanish government to say he wants more details about this amnesty deal because he has some questions about the rule of law in Spain. So that's quite important. As you were saying as well, those protests have been growing over the past few days uh, in the front of the, the HQ of the Socialist Party against this amnesty because looking at the polls, the, the majority of Spanish people are against this amnesty. So. Uh, Um, There is this investiture vote happening next week. Uh, It looks like he will have the vote, Pedro Sanchez to become Prime Minister again. So this election was a huge gamble uh, for him to stay in power. He seemed like he has pulled it off, but at what cost?
0: Mm. At what cost? Certainly the question. Uh, Do stay with us, Charlotte, then. We're going to unpack the story just a little bit more. Luis Miller is the socialist scientist then at the CISC. Luis, thank you so much for the time then uh, this morning. How strong is this deal? I mean, it, it feels like fragility could be part of the of the thinking in and around this discussion. Would you best describe it as fragile?
3: Uh, good morning. Yes, of course. Um, indeed, uh, the the government knows that uh, in the next four years uh, it will be very difficult to pass any law, so um, and probably we will we will be um, debating and discussing about um, the Catalan question. Uh, there is a conservative majority in Parliament, there is a conservative majority in the Senate and also in, uh, in most uh, autonomous communities, but there, but there will be a progressive uh, government and this will uh, basically block uh, the, the next legislature.
4: Luis, may I ask you about a potential new referendum on independence? Because from the analysis they have seen, it seems unclear on whether that it looks like Junz hasn't given up on the idea of a potential new referendum. And other columns seem to be saying that maybe it's it's been put aside. So what's your analysis on what we know so far of of the deal between Junts and the Socialist Party?
3: Okay, so there are two parts. So, so there are three parts. First, there is some... Um, uh, general, um, ideas about, uh, um, uh, who is responsible for the, for the situation in Catalonia. And um, then there is the amnesty, and this will be, this will become clear next week when the, the law is, uh, is sent to the, the parliament. And then there are some other uh, issues like the referendum and other, some economic issues that will, uh, be discussed during the the, the term, and um, so uh, and it is, this is very interesting because uh, what they have done is that they have agreed to disagree, and and then they they have uh, said that uh, Junes will ask for the referendum along the way, and in case they don't get it, they will stop supporting Sanchez, and and. But by the time being, uh, the Peso uh, and Sanchez uh, wrote in that uh, agreement that they are not uh, for the referendum.
4: May I ask you what that means also for um, the political credibility of Pedro Sanchez, I guess, to a certain extent, because there was some criticism against him in the last election when he said he wouldn't govern with the far left Podemos, and then he did. Then he said before this election that he wouldn't give an amnesty or referendum to, um, with negotiation with, with Junts or the other separatist parties, and it looks like he did. So I just want to know, what does that mean in terms of the credibility of Pedro Sanchez uh, going forward?
3: Well, that means that, uh, um, let's say, two two years down the road, maybe even less, um, he will be uh, asked again uh, by uh, the, the Catalan uh, pro-independent parties uh, to uh, agree on the referendum. And if they don't uh, get it, uh, they will stop supporting him. The thing is that... Um, once uh, he uh, is invested next next week uh, there is no vote of there is no alternative majority for a vote of confidence that's that means that uh, he could stay in power for four years even without the support of the parliament
1: he could stay in power for years but he doesn't control the Senate he doesn't control most regional or local governments as you mentioned as well. Uh, how how good is this government going to be at, in its ability to govern over a multi year period if it doesn't control key parts of the political system?
3: I mean, they they, they know. I mean, it's not something that they they hide. I mean, they uh, the the government knows that uh, uh, they will have to um, say uh, rely on uh, this really small majority, 51, fifty one, just fifty one percent of the of uh, of the of the members of parliament, um, I mean, I guess that they uh, expect the the Partido Popular, the conservative party, to uh, support some uh, laws, uh, yeah, one two years down the road. But uh, yeah, it's again, it's, a, it's another gamble. So so probably what we will have. Is uh, is a blockage and 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 new elections uh, in in a couple of years, but uh, everything is very uncertain because because the, the the country is highly polarized and and basically there is a tie. So, so we will have to see what is going on. Uh, not uh, in the next few years, the few, few weeks that uh, there will be social unrest and and a lot of protests, but in the next few months, uh, um, looking at whether the government is able to uh, to secure uh, any majority in parliament.
4: Luis, just a, a final question here. Um, what we heard from Pritch De Moy from The Socialists yesterday, they said that this agreement will help to contribute to the resolution of the conflict between Catalonia and Spain, but there is no conflict between Catalonia and Spain. If anything, independentism a movement is weaker now than it was a few years ago. So is this agreement actually likely to reopen potentially a rift between uh, Catalonia and the central government?
3: Definitely. I mean, uh, what we are seeing these days in Spain and what we are going to see the next few weeks is what we saw in in Catalonia in two thousand seventeen. So um, the 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 problem is that all the 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 real issue now is that it, it is not only in Catalonia. It is not only uh, just a push from for independence of one part of Catalonia um but uh, a real um um constitutional and social uh crisis in Spain so this is why i said that uh, in the next few weeks probably month um, th- things will be uh, very bad in, in in Spain, and then we will see. Uh, then I'm, I'm, I think there is a lot of uncertainty. But what is clear now is that the the country is is divided. So we are. Um, so the government plans to pass uh, the amnesty. That is uh, an exceptional measure, and is uh, um, uh, it has like uh, more than 70 percent of the population against. And and this is uh, this will create uh, many issues that uh, uh, will take some time to to recover from.
4: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express.
1: For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.